My name is Brenda Anderson and I teach in Women's and Gender Studies at Luther College at the University of Regina as well as in Religious Studies and I'm really uh, pleased and honored to uh, moderate this morning's first panel. Uh, we have a couple of different uh, microphones, so if there's feedback or we're not talking properly, let us know. You can hear everything, right? It's okay? Okay, thank you so much. Um, well, we have met Jackie and heard of the creative work and the inclusive work and the fighting work that Jackie is involved in, so I'm not going to continue. Although I feel like Marilyn Waring and her goats, was that an inspiration for you? <laughs> right? So goat herding, and <laughs> this is an international feminist thing. We we do goats. <laughs> and uh, sitting next to Jackie is Crystal Giesbrecht, who many, many of us know because of her actions and acts activism in Amnesty International and also working as the director of research at PADS uh, and uh, focusing on intimate partner violence and abuse. And she's also an adjunct professor in social work at the U of R. And uh, I have her come frequently to my classes, uh, and as a result, there are several students here who uh, are engaged in art activism, which is out in the foyer, and I'd invite you to look at that, but this is how it works. We inspire one another, we support one another, and we grow uh, together. And uh, so I'm really happy to work again with you. And uh, sitting next to Crystal is Darlene Okamesam Sakote. Am I Sikot? Sikot? Thank you. I know uh, Darlene's work for many, many years, as you will as well. She is a, a Cree woman from Beardies and Okamasis First Nations. That's near Duck Lake, if you don't know where it is. And uh, she has been uh, a member for 12 years. I think you were a founding member as well, were you not? No? Okay to the first meeting that they had um, of Iskwewuk, Iwichiwitochik, is that pretty good? Women Walking Together. This is a group of... Um a group of women and men, but women who are working on missing and murdered Indigenous women. And they have inspired us around the province and around the country uh, with their uh, support and their direct uh, work with families uh, who have had somebody uh, stolen from them. Darlene, for that work, received the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2013. And uh, thank you. Absolutely. And she continues to be a resource and a support, and that's why she's traveled here today for us. So thank you for joining us. And uh, obviously not last and not least is Lori uh, Job, who is the Secretary-Treasurer for the Saskatchewan Federation of Labor, Chair of the SFL Women's Committee, and she is a member of the Canadian Labor Congress Women's Advisory Committee. And we thank you very much for coming uh, from Humboldt today. So welcome everyone and thank you very much for coming to talk to us about a potential, a national action plan on violence against women and girls. And I wanted to start by reminding us of the Mestiza activist, queer poet, Gloria Anzaldúa, who said, nothing happens in the real world until it first happens in our imaginations. That's what we are called to today, is to imagine what a national action plan on violence against women and girls would look like. And this is a panel that can speak to us from the international, national, provincial, local level. So we have this uh, blueprint 
for Canada's National Action Plan that was made, <laughs> thank you for having the prop, <laughs> that was created from a wealth of expertise uh, uh, by, through the Canadian Network of Women's Shelters and Transition Houses. And surprise, surprise, it tells us that the level of violence against women and girls has not uh, changed much, very little actually, over the last two decades, that our current response to violence is inadequate and needs to, uh, needs to have a new approach from governments and citizens alike. So I would like to have this in a more informal kind of conversation, but first I would like to ask each of you to speak to uh, your work around uh, violence against women and maybe your, what, how you envision uh, this National Action Plan to begin. If we could start with Jackie on this global level and national level. Absolutely. Oh, good. We're on. I just want to acknowledge that I don't think these chairs were designed with uh, uh, all of our heights in mind. So I am sitting back and cannot touch the ground. <laughs> Others are awkwardly perching. I'm too clumsy to perch. You'll see me fall down. So if you kind of see me awkwardly sitting like this with my feet not on the ground, that's because I don't think women design these chairs. Uh, <laughs> keeping with today's theme. <laughs> So Amnesty International has long called for a national action plan on gender-based violence. And we have done so in part because it's the right thing to do and it's the practical thing to do. I wrote a blog last month about how I have an, an entire action plan around planning my kids' summer vacation, and yet we don't have one on an issue that's affecting like half the population of this country. So how's that for evidence-based decision-making, right? Um, but it's also, it's not just the right thing to do, it's not just the practical thing to do, it's also the lawful thing to do. So Canada actually has an international human rights obligation to create a national action plan on gender-based violence. So uh, the UN Secretary General under the UNITE initiative called on all UN member states to enact a national action plan on gender-based violence by 2015. Well, it's now 2018 and Canada still does not have a national action plan. And this is despite in Canada's last review before the UN of our human rights records, so that was in uh, four years ago um, during Canada's universal periodic review, a number of countries spoke out and called on Canada to enact a national action plan. When there have been investigations by CEDAW and by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, uh, specifically on the issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls in Canada, their recommendations have also called for a national action plan. And two and a half years ago when CEDAW reviewed Canada's record when it came to women's rights, CEDAW, the whole CEDAW committee also called on Canada to enact a national action plan. And still there's not one. So there is a federal strategy on jet to prevent and address gender-based violence, which was enacted last June. It's a step in the right direction, but it's only about areas under federal jurisdiction. And we know that when we're talking about gender-based violence and what we need to do to actually prevent and address it, this is including jurisdictions well beyond the federal level. And so I'll just give one example of, from Amnesty's research that really pointed out what happens when people fall and how people fall through the cracks when there isn't a strategy, a plan that really involves all levels of government. So uh, you may, some of you may know that my colleague Craig Benjamin and I did research in Northeast BC looking at gender, indigenous rights, and energy development. And we came out with the out-of-sight, out-of-mind report. 
And one of the things that we really found when we were interviewing women who had experienced violence is um, in the First Nations surrounding Fort St. John, there is not one single on-reserve shelter or other support for women in, um, in violent situations. Um, and so there's nothing, nothing in community to support folks, and so you have to leave community. So if you go to Fort St. John... The services are so overstretched because they're serving a huge, huge, huge area, including transient workers and resource development, um, that you have a, the Women's Resource Center is actually serving men, that the Friendship Center is serving non-Indigenous peoples because at this point it's just about how can you, ha just all hands on deck, help as, as you can. So what's happened is when women go to then leave their community, there's a whole issue around precarious transportation, they get to an urban center and they're trying to seek services. The services are completely inadequate and lacking because of a lack of provincial funding. There's absolutely zero culturally relevant or specific programming. And in fact, people can experience racism when they do, sit, do act, try to access the services that do exist and because they're told, go back to your community, your community should deal with you. Well, where there aren't, and there aren't, um, at the same time, there aren't those um, services in community. And so that was a very practical example of where both at the federal jurisdiction, the provincial jurisdiction, the local jurisdiction, there are women who are following through the cracks, and there is quite literally no safe space. Having a comprehensive plan that really involves all, all jurisdictions is needed to help make sure that these women don't fall through the cracks. Thank you. And... So uh, as, Dar or, um, as Brenda said when she introduced me, I work for PAS, which is the Provincial Association of Transition Houses and Services. Our job is to support 21 member agencies that are domestic violence shelters and services in Saskatchewan. So as well as my work at PAS and my, and my volunteer work with Amnesty, it's all centered around women's human rights. And so this, the work of the National Action Plan, is something that both at PAS and at Amnesty that we are advocating for. And this is really important because, as Jackie said, the UN laid out that all countries should have a national action plan on violence against women. Over 60 countries have one. So Canada should not be lagging behind on this. And especially given the high rates of violence against women in our country, and especially the exponentially higher rates of violence against Indigenous women, we really should be a front-runner on trying to find positive solutions, not lagging behind. And the blueprint document that Jackie showed you is really good. <laughs> that gives us a good starting point because Women's Shelters Canada developed that document in partnership with labor organizations, with women's organizations, with indigenous women's organizations, and it lays out a plan of what would be needed in a national action plan. So in the plan, they talk about how it would need to be federally led, but with a process of consultation with indigenous groups and provincial governments governments and indigenous governments and frontline workers and importantly survivors to figure out what actually needs to happen. But the blueprint gives really good guidelines for the criminal justice system, the support system and social policy areas of what we would need. So some of the work is being done in pockets and my work mostly is here in the province, of course, but we are partners on national initiatives and we know good work is being done. The evidence exists and we're aware of things that work and things that are culturally relevant and that are helping survivors, but the problem is 
there isn't access everywhere and not everyone has access to the same things in their communities. So I'll save some of my comments on some of the other ways that I think people slip through the cracks and, and how we can help as we go along. But I think we're getting there. As Jackie also mentioned in her opening comments this morning, we're in a good place. Our federal government has demonstrated support for wanting to reduce gender-based violence and acknowledging that this is an issue. So the time is right to really take action and call for this to happen. Hi, everyone. Um, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, myself as a person, as an Indigenous woman. I've lived in Saskatoon um, since 1991. I went to, to, to the U of S and took sociology. And um, uh, when you're talking about the National Action Plan, automatically Indigenous woman, we we have to have a plan when we leave the community. Um, that's that's a fact. Um, we have to figure out where we're going to live, you know, how we're going to you know find a place to stay that's safe. Um, what what came out of uh, working, uh, getting my education and raising my, my children as a single parent, um, I was able to use a lot of these programs and spaces, maybe not in the areas of where there's violence, but other types of um, support systems that didn't um, uh, um, label me as at, at risk. I didn't consider myself at risk, but I was told I was at risk because... I was a single mother with four children. When I first moved to the city, it was two children, and I had four children. And I was always kind of hinted at that I was at risk. I didn't feel that way because um, I grew up with 14 brothers and sisters and Beardies and Okamasis, and my parents are married forever till you know, they both passed now. So I, I didn't see myself like that, but I know it was happening. Um, and I knew where those resources were. And at that point, you're not thinking nationally. <laughs> you're thinking, you know, rur rurally first. And then, you know, you're going into an urban setting. And then you get comfortable in that urban setting. You start hearing stuff provincially. And then you start thinking nationally. Um, as I got educated and worked, the first place I worked after the U of S, um, what, uh, after getting my education was, um, at the SDC, um, family center. And in there, um, I was assigned as a PALS worker where I had to kind of work with, um, women, um, uh, that were, um, all of our clients were at risk, um, but these were clients that would walk in the door. They weren't um, DSS referred, so they came on their own free will to look for s supports and services. So that was my first kind of experience working with them, uh, with a, with other women and um, the skills that I had in the big family setting, and then the education, and then how to help those women. Um, I was I was assigned I was assigned the um, uh, single moms. Some of the other workers got the murderers, and <laughs> some other ones got you know the suicides and the um, you know drug addicted. But they found a place for me, and that's what, to work with the single moms. And um, I did that for a couple of years, and it kind of introduced me to the wider um, Saskatoon community and. Um, uh, 
then eventually employed at the University of Saskatchewan for nine years at Indigenous Studies Department. So I was thrown into another big environment where um, you're expected to be the clearinghouse of Indigenous information. And um, <clears throat> it was actually very, very fun. <laughs> I know everybody said when you walk into the university, you're, you know, you just do one job at a time, show up. <laughs> and then let's just, let's just do this. And, um, that's where we were introduced to the crisis of, um, missing and murdered Indigenous women. And, um, Esquivik was born out of a call, um, that was received at the university. And about 50 people came together and, uh, we started our work on awareness, remembrance, and supports to families. Uh, we didn't want to become nonprofit. We didn't want no government funding. Um, we wanted to just focus on those three areas. And, um, in those, in the 12 years we've been doing that, we've been doing a lot of, um, <coughs> Um, supports to families in, in general with walks and awareness, speaking engagements, conferences. Um, we're doing a chapter with uh, Dr. Kim Anderson right now, and that book will be out at the end of May. It's called Kitsanik, and it's walking with her sister. So Iskowik has a chapter in there. We were also involved with the SASC uh, Human Rights Watch report on the policing against uh, abuses of indigenous women and girls. So I was secretly undercover for two years <laughs> with working with Human Rights Watch New York, and they, they set up their uh, Canada office um, last January, and we, re we released the report um, um, June of last year, and as a result of that work, I'm doing, I just finished doing an APTN investigate, so the end of April, um, there'll be another kind of piece to follow up on that Human Rights Watch and the stuff that's been happening in Saskatchewan. And on top of all this, we have the inquiry. Um, I'm a family of a missing and murdered. And um, because of our work, we're the only group in the Saskatchewan community lead group um, that has no government funding, no, um, like, it's, it's, we're there on our own free will, but we're there with um, the, um, the Regina Treaty Status Indigenous Services and the Saskatchewan Aboriginal Women's Circle Corporation, FSIN's Women's Commission, um, the FILU, um, I don't know if you know what the FILUs are, that's the Family Information Liaison Units that the inquiry has in every every province, and uh, we're working with them. And um, throughout the years, we have been actually working with Group 33 Amnesty International. Um, we predominantly do our work with the Right for Rights, and donate a little bit of money there, and um, actively... Uh, um, work on uh, their campaigns as well. Um, when I read the uh, the current action plan and um, not understanding that we didn't even have one, I was like, oh I, boy, am I ever behind. <laughs> um, but um, I am actually also an active liberal. So I do really take any opportunity when I do bump into the Prime Minister. I don't know if you could call it bump into. You, you line up and, you know, <laughs> selfie time. But you, I, it's like you said, you've got to be 
a repeat broken record, missing women, missing women, missing women. I'm sure he's, you know, sometimes I'll slip, slip him a slip of paper, and uh, you know, here, here, we're we're doing okay. Don't 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 break down our inquiry, <laughs> you know, just stuff like that. But this is kind of like the way Esquire goes about um, doing this kind of work, and we recognize what kind of an action plan would really help. Um, all, all of Canada. When you think about just Saskatchewan, you have about seven or eight tribal councils. And for the jurisdiction I live in, it's STC. And there's eight communities with that. So when you think about their action plans, they do have a, a lot of um, things that work for them. I'm really encouraged by what that can do, but it's still, I still know it's under resourced. And there's things that have been kind of um, um, infiltrated by the system to work the way the system wants it to work, and it's going taking steps back on what was working for the community and for people. So that's what I can offer for the conversation and just jump in in and out. Thank you. And I'll just share with you a little bit about what um, the Saskatchewan Federation of Labor and the labor movement in Saskatchewan and across Canada have been doing. Um, I just want to start by saying that sexual and domestic violence and all forms of harassment against women are very important to myself and to the organization that I represent. Um, when we talk about sexual and domestic violence, we are almost always talking about men's violence against women. Well, men are and are, remain to be victims of, of domestic and sexual violence. The statistics don't lie. The overwhelming majority of survivors of sexual and domestic violence are women. And I say this not to mim minimalize the experience of the survivors who are men, but rather to remind us that if we want to end men's violence against women, we must step up and men must play a much larger role. I also want to be clear about who I'm talking about when I talk about women. I am talking about all women, cis women, trans women, women of color, indigenous women, women who are newcomers to Canada, bisexual women, lesbian women, all women. Unless our feminism and our discussions are intersectional and inclusive, we ignore the experiences of a huge number of women. A sisterhood that divides and diminishes us is no sisterhood of all, at all. And I speak um, from a place of inclusivity and acceptance. Sexual violence, harassment, and discrimination based on gender can and do exist in all workplaces. Inappropriate comments about women's bodies, the pay gap, biases, and powerful men controlling and bullying women into silence, discriminatory policies, unwelcome touching, and outright abuse and rape unfortunately happen every day in Saskatchewan, in workplaces, and across the country. Canada's unions are making workplaces safer for women by negotiating anti-discrimination and anti-harassment policies, better protection and intervention for women experiencing domestic violence, health and safety protections, and improved employee assistance benefits and support programs. Thanks to the efforts of the Canadian Labour Congress and others in the labour movement, workers in many provinces are now enjoying access to paid leave for domestic violence. And for up to five days from work. So we know that it's something in Saskatchewan that we continue to push for. Uh, we, do, we, can, we do make small gains occasionally, but we have so much more work to do. And the, I can tell you that the SFL and myself are committed to making sure that we'll push this right to the end because so much more has to be done. 
We know that every day in Canada, a woman is killed by her intimate partner. Each night, almost 4,000 women, many with their children, turn to shelters because they aren't safe at home. Research by Canada's unions found that almost 40% of working women have experienced domestic violence. We know that domestic violence is a workplace issue. And there's, there's a, lot, a huge connection to what's the work that's being done across Canada and around the National Action Plan, and I will um, thread that through our conversation as well. But I just wanted to introduce the topic and know that the, the labor movement in Saskatchewan is, is committed to you know, working with our affiliates and our members and educating people around domestic violence and the violence that ex- women experience daily in our workplaces. And we're bringing it, you know, bringing that conversation here. So thank you thank for you. inviting me. Thank you. So um, thank you for the introductions. And I'd like us to, uh, I'd like to hear from, from you all uh, what your ideal national action plan on violence against women and girls would look like. And in that description, you can address the gaps the lack of access to support the problems as well. But if we envision what it is that we're working towards from our different perspectives, we can always then identify why we're not there yet. So would that, and I invite any of you to begin and to converse with one another. You don't need me jumping in and out. So who wants to start? Well, I'll just jump into this one right away. Um, one of the things I think that the, the labor movement has done and recognized, and I know that working um, with all our partners across Canada and all different organizations, is that we're developing educational tools on the, cons- the culture of consent. Um, we need to, to have better bystander education and, and so that people can feel comfortable be, um, intervening um, instead of just being a bystander. So these are things that we need to do that, that can happen immediately, I think, to start to make things better um, for those that are experiencing any kind of violence. Uh, we need to remove stigmas. We need to, bec- to raise the awareness. We need to make it a conversation that we're comfortable and open to have at any time and in any setting. I think there's some really great work happening at all levels, at all jurisdictions in Canada. One of the immediate things that can be done, even while a national action plan is under development, is there are services that need support. So what we know is that there is a funding gap between the um, the services that are available for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit women who are escaping violence, uh, whether whether they're living on or off reserve, and for non-Indigenous um, folks experiencing gender-based violence. And so this is a problem. So one of the immediate things that can be done is a, increase funding overall um, for frontline services, but but also recognize and and um, change the funding model to end this gap, which we see in education, we see in healthcare, we also are seeing with service provision um, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples to make sure that Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit folks who are fleeing violence have access to the same level of services, whether it's on reserve, whether it's in an urban community. So I'll jump in first a little bit on the piece about where survivors fall through the cracks and then what we want to do to to fix the problem. But we know that we need a national action plan because the rates of violence in this country have not changed in the last 20 years. More needs to be done. And 
looking at Saskatchewan, I'm sure you all know this by now, but our rates in this province are double the national average. We have a lot of work to do. And when you look at the north, the territories have a rate more like four times that of the national average. And I'll come back to this after, but there is some really good work that's being done in other provinces, notably Ontario, and a lot of initiatives and things that we can learn from and bring here, but roll out across the country so that there's the good work that's being done. We can learn from it and we can use that evidence, but it needs to be offered in a consistent way so that everyone can access the service in their community. And Laurie had mentioned previously the numbers of people who access shelters every day. In one day, um, Women's Shelters Canada does a snapshot, the statistics just one day in Canada, almost 400 women were turned away from shelters because they were fall. 379 women and I believe 215 of their children in one day were turned away because they're fall. So as Jackie said, more funding across the board is going to help. But we also need to make sure that all of the services or I should say that we have services in, in all communities, in all areas of the country that serve Indigenous women in a culturally safe way, that serve gender and sexually diverse people, that serve women living with a disability, and that people have access to what they need in their communities. And I think something else that's really important in all of this is we need more funding for shelters. We also need more funding for things like second stage shelters and for outreach and support services so that survivors have real choices and they can access something in their community that's going to help them in, in the way that they want. Um, we also need better coordination among services and that's something that they talk about in that blueprint document as well. And some of the recommendations actually that have, that have come out a long time ago. So one of the pieces of really good work that happened was in Ontario, they started doing domestic violence death reviews in 2003. The first domestic violence death review had a number of recommendations that came out and some of those involved better communication and coordination among service providers, um, preventative education and public awareness, they subsequently implemented many of those recommendations. They're doing much better. <laughs> there are notable improvements in the rates of violence in that province. And now we are bringing some of those things here. So we've started implementing the Make It Our Business training program that Ontario has. Saskatchewan just did the first domestic violence death review this, this past year. So those things can be carried forward. But one of the recommendations then, which is 15 years ago now, was better communication between policing and service providers. And that's, that's what we need to do, is we need to make sure that we're communicating among service providers so no one falls through the cracks and safety is protected, but we're also protecting survivors confidentiality and choice over how they want to be served but that as well I think as better access to justice and to things like legal aid and justice system interventions things like restraining orders again more options for survivors and making it available consistently across all jurisdictions so that matter no matter where you are you have those options available to keep you safe Yeah, I'm going to expand on what um, Crystal said about the policing. Um, my, well, because I'm so um, enmeshed into the inquiry right now, because we just we finished our hearings in Saskatchewan um, on November 20th to the 24th in Saskatoon, 
and they seen 55 families and almost every one of those families talked about their experiences with policing and reporting um, not only reporting the missing but say say um, domestic violence or sexual assault um, a lot of them faced discrimination intimidation being turned away it was even written in our um, Saskatchewan Human Rights Watch report one one woman was interviewed and um, she shared that her mother was being beaten in Saskatoon and she had called the police and um, uh, the girl that called the police for her mother threatened the caller <laughs> and said, you just stick your nose out of it, let me do my job, and or otherwise I will you know, take you to jail and take your kids. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff you hear all the time during the inquiry. Um, right now in Quebec, there's an inquiry on RCMP abuses. Um, we also need the provincial buy-in. Um, we hear that from the ministers. They have this pie-in-the-sky ideas all the time, and they hear the front lines, they hear the service providers, but when it comes to it, it comes down to our premiers and our ministers to buy-in. Um, I think for this, for an action plan like that, it's. Um, I, I know we don't want to split up services, but sometimes Indigenous services are very, very different because of our relationship with uh, with the Indian Act and um, federal responsibility and provincial responsibility. So it'd be really tricky to um, how to um, match. Uh, the national action plan that's proposed to look, you know, just as similar but with the tweaks of the Indian Act process. And I know it's uh, for the activists that don't want Indian Act, um, it's not realistic, but that's the reality, you know, when you're thinking about keeping people safe and um, pulling them out of a, a serious situation. You need those resources and you need to understand um, the jurisdiction uh, limitations when it comes to the indigenous community. So, um, if that if I had uh, a magic wand, it would be just kind of to work really very closely um, on how that uh, those jurisdictions would play out. And um, also, um, I know um, the I know I'm going into politics again, but the Liberal Party. It, we're going into a convention at the end of uh, April, April 20th, and we're putting in about 30 policies. And Saskatchewan is submitting um, justice, ref justice reform, not justice reform, um, justice. Yeah, restorative justice, sorry. I woke up too early. <laughs> Um, yeah, and that's um, something I'm really looking forward to because that will involve, you know, the perpetrators healing, the victims healing in the community. And that's um, something we're hearing all the time when it comes to the MMIW experience is that it, it's not just the family that needs that support. It's everybody around them and the people that are affected by it that have to be the social control agents like policing and uh, health and um it won't be easy, but I think if the plan needs to at least have a draft. So maybe just to um, 
carry on with that. We, we're talking about a national action plan that addresses the reality. There's also the question of how do we prevent gender-based violence? What are the tools that you see needed from your different perspectives? So I think the most important piece is that working to prevent gender-based violence isn't just services for survivors. We need to simultaneously be helping the people that are living with violence now, both people who experience violence and people who use violence. So we need services and treatment programs for perpetrators as well as supports and services for survivors or victims. But we simultaneously need to be doing the education and awareness piece. And I think we really need to get this into the K-12 curriculum. And again, some places there's presentations in schools, there's healthy relationships, but it's not consistent across this province and it's not consistent at all across the country. So that's something that could easily be changed to make a big impact for the next generation. But that will help us down the road. We really need to help the adults now because in some of our research recently, which was on the topic that Lori mentioned of the impact of intimate partner violence in the workplace, we found out that people who are experiencing violence and perpetrating violence did not recognize it as such. So people were experiencing a number of behaviors that were abusive and violent and, and really dangerous things, but not identifying as someone who experienced or used violence because they didn't they didn't understand the terminology, they don't think about it that way. So we really need to do a better job of the public education and awareness so that people will reach out and get, get help. Because if people don't, aren't educated about what violence and abuse is, and that it's not okay, and that there's help, they're, they're not going to reach out. So that's a really, it sounds so basic. But why aren't we doing it? Why is it so hard? And I think it's that you simultaneously need to get it out there to, to all levels and all age groups. And also, that's why workplaces are important, because that's where you're going to get a big section of the population and where you can start to change attitudes and get that information out there. So we know what we need to do, but it takes a concerted effort of, of everybody. Everybody needs to be taking it into their workplace and into their school and into their peer groups, and that's the way to make a change, I think. Yeah, just to expand a little bit on that, um, we have done extensive work in educating um, our members on domestic violence in the workplace and actually bringing the topic and bringing the conversation to work and, and, and providing workers with tools on how to support uh, people that are affected by domestic violence because while we all have strong opinions about what should happen, you should leave, you should do this, you should do that, we know that that's not always the best advice and so we need to be able to provide the tools so that people get the proper advice and get the proper help. Uh, we need to recognize domestic violence as a safety issue in the workplace um, that's one of the things that is also very close to my heart. And so to to get our government, our provincial government, to re to recognize that each workplace needs a violence policy and not just those that are prescribed, um, that's, the, that's one push that I think will make a difference as well. Because when you bring up the conversation about domestic violence at any table that I sit at, for example, if it's an occupational health and safety, it takes a long time for to make the connection to domestic violence and occupational health and safety. But once people see it, it becomes a real, a real issue and uh, we start looking for solutions. So bringing it to the workplace is, is key, I believe. We're, we're putting our, our collective agreements to work. We're trying to get it incorporated into, into our language so that 
um, the protections are built right in because as it's been mentioned several times we need more funding but what we need is stable funding we need funding that can't be ripped apart the first time they need they have a, something that they need to remove from the budget because that's the first thing that goes and we all know that so we need stable funding absolutely um, my areas of prevention of violence well education is is one is like educating yourself on how to how to be safe and uh, I know the Native Women's Association of Canada and a lot of uh, sexual health and uh, sexual assault services they have toolkits and those could be you know just um, those kind of kits really should be on hand in workplaces and schools and um, centers, all that kind of stuff where it's very accessible um, when you can't find the resource at the tip of your fingers on on this kind of prevention um, you know, you're, you go into reaction mode and not into being proactive um, that includes the awareness of uh, your rights um, uh, that I believe also the Native Women's Association of Canada has um, exp um, did their own kind of uh, brochures and uh, literature and promotions and campaigns on um, being aware of your your personal rights. Um, I so also think that um, um, you know understanding uh, the margins uh, communities. Um, you know, newcomer, indigenous, um, there tend to be um, the high, the biggest number of victims when it comes to um, violence. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I see in our community in Beardies and Okamasis. There, um, our uh, one counselor was uh, also a liberal, and he um, used his relationships with the ministers uh, from his time there, and really works closely with Minister of um, Public Health, Public Safety, Minister Goodell, and they've been working on emergency preparedness. Emergency preparedness is not only, uh, you know, floods, fires, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's the other things that are happening. Uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, suicides. These are predominantly um, taken care of by women. And we, we need those resources, those preparedness plans need to involve some kind of a quick, quick plan and uh, a route to where... Um, support they're needed immediately so um, that's what I what I've been hearing from the community leads uh, around the country on MMIW and the liaisons um, the, the liaisons they're signed regionally they've been sharing that common thread is that emergency preparedness needs to have that kind of uh, supports in place 
On the prevention side, uh, I just want to draw your attention to one resource that, that Amnesty is starting to make use of is the new documentary film, A Better Man. It came out last fall. It's a, it's a really fantastic resource. There's actually a, a toolkit for workplaces that was developed with the Canadian Labour Congress. There's um, uh, an interactive guide, especially for men, for viewing. Um, so there's ways. Uh, they have some really incredible advocacy tools to use this film to have discussions in your home, in your communities. Um, it's uh, the film is really about uh, a woman who confronted her um, abuser, someone she was in an abusive, intimate partner relationship with over 20 years ago, and their journey together as they explored that uh, was captured on film. It's incredibly uncomfortable. Even the first time I saw the trailer, I went like I went to the dark place and with a pit in my stomach, and was like, I don't know if I can do this, but okay. And and it's really worth a, a view. And um, and we're actually showing it on Parliament Hill with parliamentarians next month, which is going to be very awkward uh, and uncomfortable, and, and I hope it will be, uh, to, to really deepen the discussion. So th we actually, as Amnesty, have access through the National Film Board um, to free copies of it. So if you want to do screenings, we do have stuff on the Amnesty website about it. But I just want to flag that whether it's about prevention or whether it's about initiatives to address gender-based violence, I think one of the things that we're all drawing out is that it's so important that one of the reasons we need a national action plan is we need this focused space to do this planning um, in a way that is centered on the groups who are most marginalized, groups who are disproportionately experiencing violence, that survivors, that rights holders are really central to that development process, that it's not a bunch of people in suits in Ottawa who are developing a plan that it really is driven um, by evidence, driven by need. And we say national action plan, it's easy for eyes to glaze over. Why do we need a plan? And we need a plan because we're in this really complicated, as has been pointed out, jurisdictional landscape in this country. And so we need a plan that really goes, okay, so let's talk about this complicated jurisdictional landscape. Let's talk about what the needs are voiced by survivors. Let's talk about you know, where the funding mechanisms are. And let's create this plan that then needs to be coupled by very good data collection, which we do not have in this country, good disaggregated data on gender-based violence at all. Uh, because, you know, you're not going to throw money at a problem and five years later say, hey, how did we do... We need a plan to be a baseline, then we need really good data collection, and then we need to be able to look at various intervals and say, has this actually made a difference? Yes, no. If no, well, then we still have a problem. How does this need to pivot? What's been happening to date is that it's piecemeal initiatives happening at all these jurisdictional levels, and there's some fantastic things happening, but without the data collection, without this coherent plan, it's really hard to know in the big picture, is it making a difference or not? And ultimately, we're seeing that the rates of violence aren't going down, which means that this really isn't working. And so that's kind of, you know, as Amnesty's perspective, when we're wanting a world where people are able to live free from violence, free from discrimination, with, with all their various rights, including rights to security of the person, right to health, are all respected, that's not going to happen when we still have the levels of violence that are way at this level. And so it's making sure, you know, we've been saying to the federal government, you know, we know that your interest is in evidence-based planning and evidence-based decision-making. And so here's an issue that is affecting directly anywhere from a third to a half 
half of the Canadian population, you know, indirectly certainly far more than that. One would think that as part of this, you know, evidence-based approach, that you would want this plan that is focused on rights holders, that it has all these smart objectives, that is coupled by data collection that is measurable. So that's why it can sound a little boring and dry to have a national action plan, but we're really seeing that that's a vehicle to create a meaningful strategy that'll that'll really be supportive of survivors. Okay, here's the news. We just heard at least two dozen recommendations, things we need to do. And by virtue of you being here, you are witness to that. The job is in our hands now. These weren't talking heads. These are people who have committed their lives <laughs> to these very serious issues. And now we have witnessed their work, and it is our job to take that out to every different career path, home life, relative, the people that are impacted by this, which may in fact be ourselves. And so I thank you for speaking from your hearts to our hearts and engaging us in this whole body experience. Uh, we can't, we shouldn't, we've been heard, we've heard from uh, Lorna and from Vianne and now from these four that this has been going on, we know it, it's been, it's continuing. Uh, even the simple act of voting in our province has been underplayed uh, and so I encourage all of you to become active if you aren't already. You're here, you're probably active, but you know others who aren't.